Podcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. I should have mentioned Anchor.fm, which is where I host the podcast, is also another venue. The difference between Baptist doctrine and Eastern Orthodoxy. I think what I might try to do is do a, a little series that describes, tries to describe and interact with the very important uh, salvifically significant differences that Baptists and really uh, that, that Baptists have with, with Eastern or- not only Eastern Orthodoxy but Roman Catholicism uh, and uh, you know other kinds of uh, Christian traditions or traditions that that have claimed the name of Christ. Uh, over the centuries, and uh, I think that that could be helpful. Now, the the drawback here is that you're looking at uh, longer episodes because there's just a lot to cover, and uh, and even what I'm going to be able to cover is not uh, going to be extensive uh, or exhaustive. Um, so just, you know, if you're watching this, you know, maybe put on a seatbelt and, and get ready, grab a, uh, something good to drink or eat and, uh, and strap in. Um, now the other thing I want to mention before I get into this is some of the things that I'm going to mention as differences between Baptists and, uh, those who subscribe to Eastern Orthodoxy are not distinct to Baptists. Uh, some of these differences, um, are differences that any reform person, Presbyterian, uh, you know, Lutheran, others like that could actually cite as well. Um, f- for example, the number one difference will be justification by faith versus uh, a theosis unto kind of a, th- a final justification. Any Protestant, uh, confessional Protestant, would would be able to, you know, um, get on board with with citing that as a difference as well. Um, then you have, but then you have uh, things like credo baptism versus infant baptism. Well, that's something that is more distinct to Baptist doctrine uh, that a Presbyterian could not cite as a difference with uh, with Eastern Orthodoxy, um, even though their view of pedo baptism or baptism of infants is going to differ drastically from how the Eastern Orthodox conceive of it. Anyway, so let's uh, with those qualifications uh, set down. Um, Let's let's get into it. Um, there are four main differences here that I have uh, uh, that I have gathered. Um, let's see here. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Uh, four 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 main differences here that I have gathered, uh, and um, and I'll just go through them. But to to at the outset, as part of the introduction, I'll mention them all at once. So they are as follows. The first difference, and I think is one of the most foundational, is justification by faith versus theosis unto salvation or final justification. Now, that deals with the very nature of the gospel. It answers the question of how are we made right before God? Uh, How are we saved? How are we declared righteous before God? 
Um, so a very foundational difference that results in a a formal uh, and um, and um, salvifically significant uh, difference between us and the Eastern Orthodox. It would essentially be to say there are two different gospels. One of us has the right one and one of us has the false one. And so it's that important. Uh, it, it's, a, it's as important as to say that if you, if you disagree on this issue, one or the other side is basically saying you can't be saved. All right. So that's the first and primary difference. Justification by faith versus theosis. The second difference would be baptism as a means of grace versus baptism as a saving grace itself. All right, so, uh, and baptism as a saving grace itself would, would insinuate something like uh, baptismal regeneration. The third difference is credo-baptism, that is, baptism of professing believers only versus infant baptism, which would be baptism of infants apart from a confession or profession of faith. The fourth difference is continuity of faith versus apostolic succession. Um, there's always, there, there are groups that always say we're the true church, we can trace ourselves back, look at the history, and they'll appeal to the history to be able to prove their succession from the first century onward. Um, whereas I don't think that historical succession is as important as a continuity of faith, and I think I'm, uh, I am on the side of uh, Protestant in, uh, Protestantism in general on that, but also on the side of uh, confessional Baptist doctrine on that as well. It's it's the continuity, it's the faith that is believed, not whether or not you can trace the believers of that faith back historically. Um, I think those are two different approaches that have two very different results, and and that's uh, a very important difference. Okay, so beginning with uh, justification by faith versus uh, a, a kind of theosis unto salvation. Now, let's talk about theosis. Theosis is an Eastern Orthodox term, and might, we might be able to say that it's a distinctive amongst the Eastern Orthodox, and it is basically deification. It is man's participation in the divine nature as a creature. So they're not saying that man is actually becoming God himself or anything like that. That's not what they mean. Rather, it's something more akin or along the lines of... Uh, through God working in us, he is restoring his image in us, and we are being restored unto him in virtue of that. So, um, theosis or deification is, is that in which man's salvation preeminently consists. And it's, it's, it's not so far off from our understanding of sanctification, um, because in sanctification, we would say that uh, God is really and truly, by the power of his Holy Spirit, restoring the image of God in us by grace. That's what we what we would call sanctification. In other words, you know, it's it's the Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And sanctification is the process that God um, that God works in us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is that is something similar. We have we have you know, a similar belief there in that we, we, we both believe that God is working in the sinner to restore him unto a, 
a right image of God, to restore the image of God in him. If you want to call that theosis, uh, you know, that's, you know, deification or whatever. Uh, that's that's one thing, although it has some odd connotations sometimes. People mistake it for meaning that, you know, we are being made into God, and that's that's not the case at all. God shares his glory with no one, um, and, um, and we are to understand that our participation in God's glory is a distinctly creaturely participation in God's glory that's had through sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, if salvation consists wholly in theosis, that is, in us being made righteous, having the image of God restored in us, then it follows that our justification is causally linked to that process of sanctification. In other words, we are justified in as much as we are sanctified, or we are justified in as much as we are deified and made into the likeness of God. And you will have uh, those who are of the Eastern Orthodox persuasion say, well, justification is a one-time act of God whereby the sinner is declared righteous for the righteousness of Christ. But, they will add to that, add to that, but it is important to maintain good works because in the end you will stand at the tribunal before God and you will be finally justified or declared righteous based on your works. And if you had no works, then you will be, uh, you will essentially be um, judged. Now, uh, there's, so there's a, for them, there would be something akin to a twofold justification, an initiatory justification that happens at the beginning uh, freely apart from our works. It's a sovereign monergistic work of God, so-called. But then there's also this final justification which takes place after a life lived unto a right obedience before God. Um, according to us, and I think according to the scriptures, justification is uh, single-fold. It's not two-fold. It's, it's an act of God whereby man is declared righteous only on account of the righteousness of Christ not for any quality in man, whether it's worked by God or otherwise. So even if man is sanctified, and that is done by a sovereign work of God, it's a grace of God, we might say, um, that's not what justifies us. What justifies us ultimately is not the quality according to which we participate in the process of sanctification. What what make what what declares us right or what accounts for the, this declaration of righteousness that God you know uh you know one time and singularly issues toward man is the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of Christ alone and we receive that righteousness of Christ by faith and it is an imputation that is it is to say that the righteousness of Christ is counted as our own even though we have not yet been made righteous, okay? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, this is seen in several different texts. Romans 4, 5 through 6 says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that act of belief, is, count, is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Again, this is... There's no duty in man implied in our justification. It's not as if God justifies on the basis of the fact that we have been made able to obey. We are justified uh, 
exclusively through the righteousness of Christ alone. Romans 4, verse 11, going on in the same chapter, says, And Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. We might be able to say a sign of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So he had the righteousness of faith prior to his circumcision. His circumcision was a mark of that righteousness. It was a sign of that righteousness. Moving further uh, into Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Before Abraham obeyed the terms of the covenant, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That means that Abraham was justified apart from works, even those works which God had commanded in his covenant, and even those works which could be given to Abraham by or through grace. Um, Abraham is, is accounted righteous, righteous prior or antecedently to all those things. Psalm 32 verse 2 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here you have this justification not being imputed as a sinner or not having sin imputed to us, rather having the righteousness of God imputed to us, and man is blessed also whose spirit whose spirit there is no deceit within. All right. And so there you have a, a snapshot of justification and sanctification. They're together, but they are distinguished. Justification and sanctification are distinguished. Man is not justified in the measure that he is sanctified. All right. Justification comes before sanctification, results in sanctification, but justification by no means results from sanctification. It's very important. And, and, and if we get that wrong, we get the whole gospel wrong. Because all of a sudden, we're looking to ourselves and the quality of good works in ourselves, the quality of God's work in us, the progress of God's work in us. We're looking at that to see whether or not at the end we're going to be justified, rather than looking at Christ and looking toward Christ and resting in Christ. Um, for our part, you know, we would we would understand there to be a twofold sanctification. Um, or there are two kinds of sanctification in Scripture. There's a positional sanctification, which happens at the same time we are justified, and there is a progressive sanctification that happens or takes place as a process throughout the entire duration of the Christian's life in this uh, current state. So positional sanctification refers to or describes man being set apart in Christ for God's glory immediately upon regeneration and conversion. And it happens upon at, at the same instance of man's justification as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, perfect tense in the Greek, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So you have this positional idea of sanctification. It's something that has already happened, but we also understand that it's something that is happening, and that gets us to progressive sanctification, which is the process whereby the Holy Spirit makes a sinner to be righteous or increases the sinner's holiness such that his sin is dissipated. He's made able more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit to mortify his sin, to be an imitator of God, to do to do good works fitting to the kingdom of God, which he has been converted into. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering he, Jesus Christ, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Uh, and that's in the present tense. Um, now, it's really important to understand that in one sense, Jesus has perfected us forever. It's the work of Christ that uh, determines our perfection in the sight of God. And that's a forever perfection. So he's already accomplished that. That's something that's already done. And that's concomitant with our justification. It's the, again, it's the righteousness of Christ that perfects us in the eyes of God, such that he can declare us righteous. But then we also understand that from that event, and because of that, we are being sanctified, present tense, in a progressional or processive way. All right, and that's Hebrews 10, 14. Now, what happens, we've already alluded to this, but what happens when we confuse justification with sanctification is that we begin to confuse what makes us right before God uh, with our own inherent or internal righteousness, which God is pleased to work in us through the process of sanctification. Uh, so if one is made right before God in proportion to the measure in which he is more God-like, then sanctification and justification are confused. And I think this is what Eastern Orthodoxy does. Um, Gregory of Palamas, uh, a 15th century uh, Eastern Orthodox father, says, So we know that the commandments of God also grant knowledge, and not that alone, but deification also. All right, so the law of God here is responsible for our deification. It, in that sense, gives life. Um, Theodore uh, Stylianopoulos writes, as Orthodox Christians, we do not believe in predestination. Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. The gift and the challenge to follow Jesus through a life of faith and works coincide. In other words, what he's saying here is that finally, the arbiter of man's justification and man's rightness before God is man himself. Though it is said to be entirely given of God, it's a gift provided by God, yet it is man's responsibility uh, to ultimately act upon that gift. So the final arbiter ends up being man, not God, even though God is said to be responsible for the whole thing. Um, um, let, me, let me try to explain it like this. So if God, if, if, if there is no predestination, right, if there is no predestination, and uh, God does not predestine those uh, unto a love for him and thus salvation for them, uh, then what ends up happening is, uh, there is there is there is man, man becomes the uh, the one who ultimately decides and thus is credited as the one who initiated on the gift of salvation right? And so what ends up happening is man becomes the arbiter or the starting point of man's own salvation. Whereas if God predestines man for salvation, then it's consistently said to be all of God and all of God alone. It's monergistic, not synergistic. It's a unilateral work of God. It's not a cooperative effort of God and man together. Um, and so, um, so what ends up happening is if you say there is no predestination, uh, and if you and if you identify uh, and if you say that it's it's ultimately man who acts on the grace of God, well then what you have to do is you have to say that that there's something in man, and there's something there's something in man that serves as the 
factor for why this man and not the other man was saved. It's not all of God. It's, it's up to man in some measure. All right. It's synergistic, we might say. If justification and sanctification are confused, it follows that justification is on account of something in us. The measure in which we've been sanctified by God through Christ, rather than the merits of Christ alone. Justification would depend on the measure in which we've been sanctified by God through Christ, rather than the merits of Christ alone. And that's false for a couple of reasons. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For whom he foreknew, God, foreknew, which is an active verb, it's not passive, this is not a passive um, observational knowledge of God where, whereby he looks into the, uh, the future and sees what would happen um, given the free agency of creatures or something like this. This is an active foreknowledge for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, again, another active verb, to be conformed to the image of his son. So God foreknew, he then predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So whom God, those whom God actively predestined are those whom God calls. And those whom are called are those whom he justifies. All right? Again, it's a it's a it's a it's a chain it's a causal chain that cannot be disrupted or interrupted, uh, and it's all of God, whom He justified; these He also glorified. Uh, in Ephesians one five, uh, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. It's not it's not founded in man; it's founded in God. All right, and. Um, so how do I bring this back to justification? Well, God predestines our justification. It's not what we do. It's not that he looks down the corridors of time and says, well, so long as they obey me, I will cooperate with them in their sanctification and judge them just at the end. Um, and therefore, they're elect in that sense and justified in that sense. No, it's, it's rather God predestines man before the foundation of the world. And as a result of, God, uh, of that unilateral act of predestination, we are not only justified, but sanctified and, then, and henceforth glorified. I want to read an excerpt from Athanasius, uh, which is considered to be an early church father in Eastern Orthodoxy. And what Athanasius says is, is, is extremely important. He says, therefore, reason is there that Sorry, he says, therefore, reason is there that the word on coming into our flesh, by the word he means the, uh, the son becoming incarnate, on coming into our flesh and being created in it as a beginning of ways for his works is laid as a foundation according as the father's will was in him before the world, as has been said, and before land was and before the mountains were settled, and before the fountains burst forth, that though the earth and the mountains and the shapes of visible nature pass away in the fullness of the present age, we, on the contrary, may not grow old after their pattern, but may be able to live after them, that is, have eternal life. And this is what he says, having the spiritual life and blessing, which before these things have been prepared for us, in the word himself, according to election. 
For thus we shall be capable of a life, not temporary, but ever afterwards abide and live in Christ, since, or on account of, even before this, our life had been founded and prepared in Christ Jesus. So before everything, our life had been founded and prepared in Christ Jesus. We are elect in him, and because we are elect in him, we shall persevere unto the end and be glorified and live eternally with God as a result. So, that ends my address of the first point. Again, that's justification by faith versus theosis. We are not justified in the measure that we are made righteous. We are justified in the measure that Christ is righteous, and we are imputed with his righteousness alone. Otherwise, salvation is not by grace. Salvation is on account in some measure uh, of, what man, of what man does. Moving secondly to the second point, baptism as a means of grace versus baptism as a saving grace itself. We agree that baptism is a sign. Uh, we agree that baptism signifies something. Um, and Baptists, confessionally and historically, have also said that baptism is something more than a sign. It's not just an empty symbol, in other words. Baptism is a means of grace, it is said. It's a gift to the believer. That's what is meant by that. When we say it's a means of grace, it's a gift, or, or that which is signified by it is a gift uh, to the believer. Um, it is sometimes called, even in the Baptist catechism, an effectual means of salvation, not on account of it itself, but on account of the faith by which we approach baptism. First uh, Peter 3.21 says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not saying here that we're justified by our baptism or that we're regenerated uh, by our baptism itself, but that baptism is put here for our good, that it is instituted for our good. And in that sense, it fits in with the process of our salvation. Uh, it, it declares uh, the answer of a good conscience toward God because of what it signifies, namely regeneration. It signifies our union with Christ and so on. Baptism by itself, the water washing over the person, the, uh, the person administering it, dipping the person into the water, immersing the person into the water and bringing them out, that is itself not a grace. Um, if baptism in and of itself was a grace then it would not require faith to be approached unto. Um, and that would be a problem because the dictum that Paul gives us in Romans 14.23 is that whatever is not from faith is sin. So if we do not approach baptism by faith, we approach it in a sinful way. Baptism, which is obedience, Acts 10.48 is a command to be baptized, um, if, if baptism were a grace, then it would follow that an act of obedience would affect saving change. Our salvation would then be grounded in part by what we've done, that is, in our baptism. Um, and uh, again, if, if baptism itself was a grace, it would, mean that, uh, it would mean that something we do or something our parents did while we were infants would of course be uh, would of course be effectual unto our salvation in an efficient manner. Paul places a priority on the preaching and hearing of the gospel over baptism. He says, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made 
of no effect, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Now, if baptism were responsible for our regeneration, this would be like Paul saying, for Christ did not send me to desire the salvation or regeneration of, of others, uh, but, just, but just to preach the gospel, which would be nonsensical in light of a comprehensive understanding of Paul's ministry. Of course, Paul was out to save men by the gospel. But if Paul is not especially concerned with baptism, and baptism is also identified with regeneration, then Paul would essentially be saying here that he's not sent to save men. He's not sent to save men by means of the gospel. He's sent to do something else. He's sent to just preach. Um, so I think it's assumed in a statement like this that someone can be saved antecedently to their water baptism. Someone can be regenerated antecedently to their water gener- to their water baptism um, through means of the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. So baptism may be called a means of grace, but is not itself a saving grace. It does not affect regeneration, which is necessary unto salvation or anything of the sort. Um, we have credo-baptism versus infant baptism. Now, in all fairness, the Eastern Orthodox do not believe infant baptism is necessary for the infant's salvation. In other words, if an infant dies in infancy and is not baptized, they do not believe that an infant is, you know, finds him or herself in hell. Uh, they, they reject that. Um, John Hainsworth writes, the Orthodox Church does not believe that children are born guilty of Adam's sin and that unless freed of that guilt through baptism and communion, they will die without God's mercy. Such a notion is pernicious both for its barbarism and for its distortion of God. Now, there's problems, obviously, uh, of accepting the infant from, uh, from Adam's sin. We know, we read from Scripture that uh, all are fallen in Adam, that there is no one righteous. These are Romans 3.23 and elsewhere. These are unqualified statements. Um, and so that the infant is in need of the grace of God for salvation— and while even Baptists would make arguments that God does not damn infants to hell if they die in infancy, that their death in infancy is a signification of their election, uh, John MacArthur is one who makes that argument. They would still say that they are in need of God's grace and mercy on account of them being fallen in Adam. Okay, so it's very important that we understand that all people are fallen in Adam. There's no such thing as an innocent human being, and thus if infants are saved, it's on account of God's grace and mercy. Um they now it's odd because they they seem they they say well infants don't need baptism in order to be saved but they do they, then they turn around they and they will say things that that imply that baptism is necessary baptism itself produces a change in the infant's relation to god it is said and is therefore highly preferable if not necessary for the infant's enjoyment of god uh, again hainsworth uh, the same author i just read says baptism affects a change in one's status with god it is more than a mere sign. The views held by most Christians about marriage provide a useful comparison. Few Christians would say that a marriage ceremony is merely a sign. A change clearly occurs. The man and the woman are, are separate before the ceremony, but they are one flesh after. This is a profound change, one which is affected by God through the ceremony itself. Baptism is no different. Um, now, of course, I, and I, my objection to that would be, well, what affects the change is the new birth, which happens by virtue of the Spirit's work. Blow, the Spirit, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Spirit blows where he wills. It's not dependent upon the hands of the adult, you know, sprinkling or dipping the infant. 
that regeneration or the new birth occurs sovereign as a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. The, the wind blows where it wills, right? And interestingly, in that discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus never mentions baptism. He never mentions baptism. He does mention the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, but not baptism. Um, Credo baptism holds that baptism must be approached by faith, a faith that God works in uh, the believer. Uh, Romans 14, 23 again says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever, whatever, that's an unqualified general statement for whatever is not from faith is sin. That must include baptism. If it includes anything, an ordinance of God must be approached by faith or it is approached by sin. It's approached sinfully. Now it can be objected, of course, that infants may have faith. Uh, though we can't tell it, we, we can't discern it, um, but that would be presumptuous. Uh, we are commanded to discern the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, we are not commanded to presume upon a, a person's innocence or, or whatever. We are commanded to, uh, to, to, to look at the fruits of the Spirit, not to presume on a person's status. Um, even Thomas Aquinas says on the sin of presumption, he says, just as through despair, a man despises the divine mercy on which hope relies. So through presumption, he despises the divine justice, which punishes the sinner. Now, justice is in God, even as mercy is. Therefore, just as despair consists in aversion from God, so presumption consists in inordinate conversion to him. All right, so uh, presumption is, entails a presuming upon God, um, you know, and, and, um, and to suggest one has faith apart from the evidences God himself commands us to observe is, is a form of that presumption. St. Augustine states, For it pleased God in order most effectually to quench the pride of human presumption that no flesh should glory in his presence, that is, no man. Um, I'm thinking anecdotally here, but I, I know of many who have been baptized as infants who have grown up only to presume on his or her own baptism. Uh, they will uh, say, well, my parents had me baptized when I was an infant, therefore, you know, I'm good. And of course, that's a misunderstanding in any tradition of Christianity. Um, but at the same time, um, what happens uh, is that a, a, an air of presumption is created in those who have been baptized as, as infants. And, and the reason that's the case is because ultimately flesh can glory in infant baptism. Uh, parents will say, oh, I had my child baptized. They're glorying in what they have done. Uh, I had my child baptized, and this has resulted in his or her own salvation. And they're, they're, they're able to glory. Flesh is, in that instance, able to glory in the presence of God, which Scripture expressly denies. Um, I'm convinced that when you go to the East Coast and you see all these historical congregations that have existed since the 17th century, uh, that infant baptism, pedo-baptism, was instrumental in the death of those congregations. They're all liberalized, Unitarian Universalists now. Um, most of them are, not all of them, but most of them. And um, accepting of various perversions of marriage and so on. 
And um, I'm convinced that part of that is a lack of emphasis on the new birth, a lack of emphasis on regeneration and conversion of the sinner, and a reliance upon the act of man in submitting their children to the ordinance of paedo-baptism. So one difference between us and the Eastern Orthodox and, and between us and other traditions as well would be credo-baptism versus infant baptism. We believe that the ordinance of God must be approached by faith. And since that's the case, there must be a profession, a credo, if you will, of the Christian faith before baptism takes place. This is even consistent with the earliest document ever, uh, the, the earliest document that we possess extant continually uh, unto today is called the Didact. It's the earliest post-canonical, uh, post-biblical document that we have. Uh, extant today. Uh, and it's the didact or the teaching of the 12 apostles, probably was not obviously written by the 12 apostles, but it is a very early document. And in that document, there is emphasis put on the catechesis of professing believers prior to their baptism. That tradition does not remain in Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism for that matter, that there's this emphasis of catechesis that the person would know what they profess before they approach the ordinance of baptism. There is no mention of infant baptism in the, in the didact. Again, it's the earliest post-biblical canon document that we have extant and available to us. And some will make an argument from silence and say, well, they're not concerned with infant baptism. It was being assumed. I don't think that's the case at all. It, this is, a, this is a, a, a document that is written to Christians generally for the catechetical benefit, and it does not one time mention infant baptism. Take that for what you will, um, but there is an emphasis on educating the professing believer in what they profess prior to, to approaching the ordinance of baptism. Um, there's also a difference uh, between us and the Eastern Orthodox with regard to the way we view apostolic succession. Um, Baptists historically have not believed in uh, even a Baptist successionism. There is a, 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 a position within Baptist uh, belief and literature that is called Baptist successionism, that says, you know, Baptist, true Baptist practice and churches, etc., can be traced back all the way to the apostles, and we can find that in uh, the historical corpus. If we can't, we just have to be agnostic about it and believe that it was there somewhere uh, and, is, and is shrouded by the mystery of the ages. Um, that is a form of apostolic succession. I, I think historically Baptists have rejected that. They have rejected, of course, that... Uh, Apostolic succession occurs through the papacy, uh, and Eastern Orthodoxy rejects that as well. They do not have a pope or a papacy. Um, and we've, but we've also rejected apostolic succession in terms of, of councils, patriarchs, metropolitans, uh, the um, practice, uh, the, the, the appearance of practice, the same practice throughout the history books. Rather, we have grounded what makes for a true church in the doctrine that is believed and practiced. Uh, we don't need to look back and find ourselves throughout all the centuries. Uh, we do we do that, and it's important to do that in order to uh, in order to uh, say yes, what we believe is nothing new. We're not making this up. 
Uh, but what makes for a true church is not that it can be spotted in every century going all the way back to the... It, that, that its very self can be spotted in every century going back to the uh, the foundation of the church in the first century. Um, rather, it is what what is believed. Um, John Braun, an Eastern Orthodox priest, writes, But that first church, the church of Peter and Paul and the apostles, the Orthodox church, so it, he understands the Orthodox church to be the, the true and first church, Despite persecution, political oppression, and des uh, and desertion on certain of its flanks, miraculously carries on today the same faith and life of the Church of the New Testament. Admittedly, the style of orthodoxy looks complicated to the modern Protestant eye, and understandably so. But given the historical understanding of how the Church has progressed, the simple Christ-centered faith of the apostles is clearly preserved in its practices, services, and even in its architecture. So the claim here is the Orthodox Church represents the preservation of the first century church in its practices, services, and even its architecture. Um, now, that's not true. <laughs> it's not entirely true. Maybe there are some things in Eastern Orthodoxy, and I don't doubt that there, there are, that go all the way back to the, to the apostles. Um, in, any tradition that claims to be Christian has at least something that goes all the way back to the apostles, if, it, if not just the profession of Christ, right? Uh, the profession of belief in him, of course, goes all the way back to the apostles. Um, but there are a couple of reasons this this strong claim to uh, practical consistency over all the ages is not true. One of them is iconography. Iconography was not a practice in the first century. Um, painted art uh, was not um, a uh, a widely practiced art form that early on. Uh, the earliest extant icon dates back to maybe the 6th century, if not later than that, maybe the 7th or 8th. The oldest imagery of Jesus stretches back to the 3rd century. Uh, that's, you know, well over 100 years after the apostles. The earliest painting of the apostle Paul was created probably in the 4th century. And more than that, there's no command in Scripture to produce icons. Zero. It rides wholly upon the tradition of men. To the contrary, it's forbidden by the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 20 verses 4 through 5a. Um, for all intents and purposes, the early church understood that to be a restriction on worshiping God through imagery. Now, images did become practical way early on in the Christian church for the simple reason that it was largely not a literate community of people. Uh, and so it it made sense to produce images for didactic effect. But slowly over time, images came to be seen as sacramental. That is, there is a drawing nigh to God through the image produced by an icon. And that is completely alien to Old Testament or New Testament practice. The doctrines of the faith. Notice that uh, John Braun puts emphasis on the practices, services, and the architecture of the Eastern Orthodox Church. But what about the doctrines of the faith? Uh, 
you know, what, what, what must be believed? What, where's the continuity of belief? The truth is, there has been very little continuity of belief amongst Eastern Orthodox Christians. Now, they'll say, we're the one church, we have, we have maintained continuity about our ranks from the first century onward. But just within the Eastern tradition, there's the Oriental Orthodox, there's the Church of the East, and there is Eastern Orthodoxy. All of them, each of those groups, have picked and chosen which of the seven ecumenical, or which of the ecumenical councils uh, to adopt or not. For example, Oriental Orthodoxy accepts three ecumenical councils as authoritative. Remember, Eastern Orthodoxy does not refer to a pope as their unifying factor. They have no universal bishop. Their unifying factor, so-called, are the ecumenical councils, all right? The ecumenical councils is where they base their orthodoxy. Oriental Orthodoxy accepts three ecumenical councils as authoritative. The First Council of Nicaea, the Second Council of Nicaea, and the Council of Ephesus. It ceases to accept any other council as authoritative. And it ceases to do so because the East actually split, they had a schism, as a result of the Chalcedonian Declaration in the 5th century. So the Oriental Orthodox is a branch of Eastern Orthodoxy that branched off or separated in um, in the fifth, as early as the 5th century. Um, and of course, the Eastern Orthodox will claim, well, they left us, they departed from us, and we represent the true church, right? We represent the true tradition. Um, following on from the Oriental Orthodox, you have the Church of the East, which only accepts two of those councils, the First Council of Nicaea and the First Council of Constantinople. Then you have Eastern Orthodoxy, which accepts seven councils going all the way up to the 8th century. So, of course, they didn't look the same as they did back in the 5th century or the 3rd century, for that matter. And so what exactly the Oriental Orthodox or the Church of the East broke off from is nebulous in character. They could say, yeah, they broke off from us. Who's to say you are the ones that are most faithful prior to the 5th century or the 3rd century where those, count, where those traditions, the Church of the East and the, and the Oriental Orthodox, departed from uh, the rest of the councils or the councils going further on from that point on. So they accept seven councils as authoritative. That's the; Those are the First Council of Nicaea, the, the First Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, the Second Council of Constantinople, the Third Council of Constantinople, and the Second Council of Nicaea. The Third Council of Constantinople was contested. There was fallout in all of this. There was, there was very little unity. In fact, there's been very little unity in the East in general for centuries. Uh, so the Third Council of Constantinople was contested. Uh, since the 8th century, there has been no authoritative council, which accounts for the vast array, of course, of diversity within the Eastern Orthodox tradition. You are going to get different answers on important facets of Christianity from one Eastern Orthodox priest than you would from another Eastern Orthodox priest. If you go to a, a cloister monastery where uh, there are celibate Eastern Orthodox priests or monks living together, uh, and all they do is theology, uh, and all they do is uh, worship practice. Uh, you're going to get a different answer from them than you would going and talking to an Eastern Orthodox priest that has been conditioned by his cultural circumstances in New York City, for example. 
And, and the reason for that is the looseness that is caused by the obscurity of the councils moving up to the 8th century. They do not, um, they have not been pressed by controversy to hammer out what they believe about justification by faith alone, for example. And so they are, they are very, you will, you will hear some things that sound like justification by faith alone in some wings of Eastern Orthodoxy, and then you'll hear things that sound like justification by theosis at the end, at the grand tribunal of heaven. Um, and so it's just, it's just very inconsistent because the 8th century marks the end of the ecumenical councils in the eyes of the Eastern Orthodox. Um, Oriental Orthodoxy, the Church of the East, differ from those further councils that were added later on. Again, what makes them not part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition on the grounds that they rejected the next five or six or whatever, four or five uh, councils? Who's to say they're not right? And who's to say the other councils are wrong? If it's tradition alone and we're not bringing scripture into it, there's nothing. There's nothing there to say that Oriental Orthodoxy is wrong or the Church of the East is wrong. There's only the Eastern Orthodox priests and the Eastern Orthodox hierarchy to tell you that their tradition is the correct one. Reference must be made to scriptural exegesis. Re reference must be made also secondarily to the historical consensus of dead saints throughout the centuries. And I think what you find in Athanasius in the Cappadocian Fathers, even going back before Gregory of Palamas, um, is, is a great deal of disagreement with contemporary Eastern Orthodoxy. And a lot of what contemporary Eastern Orthodoxy believes has been conditioned by Gregory Palamas. Um, and so that Palamite theology has affected Eastern Orthodoxy. But hey, that Palamite theology in some ways, is a 15th century innovation and departure from the Cappadocian Fathers. So look, there's not a lot of unity. There's a lot of verbal unity. They say there's unity, but when you start to lift up the sheet, when you start to explore more about the history, what you'll find is that there's actually not very much unity. I would like to say that if you're an Eastern Orthodox adherent, I, I really appreciate you watching this. I uh, I can I appreciate the fact that you were willing to go through this and hear my perspective as a Baptist coming at this. I I am um, uh, like you know I I obviously believe that these are very important issues uh, and I'm I'm really glad that you you had the patience to to sit through this. I hope that it's helpful to you. Um, I don't want it to be a bash session where I just you know I'm beating Eastern Orthodoxy over the head. I really want it to be a uh, a discussion that is helpful for you in some way, um, and 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 adds to uh, your ability to think, even maybe to defend your own position in a more sufficient manner, or even to think about um, uh, the claims of Baptist theology and tradition, confessional uh, Baptist theology. So, if you watched this, if you enjoyed it, if it was helpful, please share it, give a thumbs up. God bless you guys. Thanks for watching.